Hello and welcome to Interfilm Recommends, a regular podcast for film club leaders to explore exciting new titles with their clubs. My name is Michael and as usual I'm joined by Joe. Hello. In today's secondary theme podcast we'll be discussing Blade Runner 2049 and Breathe. So let's kick off with Blade Runner 2049. So Blade Runner 2049 is a 15th certificate and uh, we have it at 14 plus on the catalogue. It's set 30 years after the original film where a new Blade Runner unearths a dark secret which threatens the future of humanity. That's right, it's very much a long-awaited sequel and this one sees Ryan Gosling take to centre stage as Officer K who, as you say, discovers something that has the potential to plunge what is left of society uh, into utter chaos. Uh, like the original film, it's very much a dystopian society, and Kay embarks on a quest that ultimately leads him to tracking down Harrison Ford's Deckard, who was the star of the original film, and he's a former Blade Runner who's been missing for more than 30 years. Okay, Jules, so what relationship does this film share with its predecessor? Do audiences need to be aware of the original film to appreciate and enjoy this one? Well, for those who don't know, we should probably just touch on the original film. It was made in 1982 and directed by Ridley Scott and based on a short story by Philip K. Dick known as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And it's set in a rainy and neon-lit Los Angeles in the year 2019, which, at the time the film was made, seemed an eternity away. And in it, Rick Deckard works as a Blade Runner, a cop whose sole job it is to hunt down and terminate four robots who exist in a human form known as replicants. But as with lots of films like this, I think the filmmakers are well aware that they need to cater for new audiences as well as the fans of the original. So while I would say it would help to have seen it, and I think you should anyway, because in my opinion it's one of the greatest science fiction films ever made, I don't think it's essential. That said, while it is a film set in the future, it's not one that bears much resemblance to how our own lives are likely to be in 2049. What Denis Villeneuve, the director, has done is imagined a world building on from that created in the original film, rather than something that's more created in reality. So it achieves this difficult balance of being made with total respect for what preceded it, but it's also brave enough to be its own thing, which is an attitude that I really admire. And it's a big, weighty, serious film that tackles some really big themes about love and humanity and emotion and morality. Fans of the original will pick up on references here and there, and they'll definitely enjoy the kind of treasure hunt process of digging out all of the references. But they're built in very organically within the storyline, and they're not essential to the plot, I don't think. Exactly. So let's hear a clip from the film. It was unclear what she was, at least to someone. This was a test. We were difficult to spot then. Was there anything unusual about how you found her? To warrant an official investigation? You know how people are about old serial numbers. Everyone just sleeps better when they know where they got to. She likes him. Oh. This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It's fair to say that some of the film's biggest strengths are its visual and sound design, mm. and it received five Oscar nominations across those categories. Uh, why are these so impressive, and, and what other areas of the film do you admire? 
So the Los Angeles scene in the film here, as in the original, is a real nightmarish place and it feels both plausible and slightly dreamlike at the same time. As in the original, most of the action takes place at night in this kind of smoddy atmosphere that's full of sleaze and decay and that really dominates society. The weather is harsh, the oceans are out of control and the environment is really toxic. And all of these elements the filmmakers were very keen to emphasise in every aspect of the design. So you see it coming through in the architecture and the clothing and all sorts of aspects of the film. And it's done really naturally and very, very cleverly. In 2049, the atmosphere has become so thick with pollution that we get these kind of individually tailored advertisements and they can simply be projected into the air rather than onto a building they're just kind of existing as their own thing society is very much rotting and everything that you see in the film is very much designed to represent a culture that's striving for survival and i think the way the filmmakers have achieved this and what they've done very cleverly is that they've used as many practical sets as possible so it would have been the easiest thing in the world to just use cgi but this more physical approach allows for a much deeper engagement between the cast and the settings that we might otherwise have seen. We've also got this incredibly rich and vivid cinematography from Roger Deakins, who won an Oscar, actually, for this film. And he's created this succession of really quite astounding images, just unlike anything you've seen on film before. And again, they both reference and expand on what we've seen in the original and it just all adds up to quite breathtaking visual experience, I think. And just finally, it also feeds into the creation of a world that's very different to our own, but taps into these contemporary anxieties that we have around overpopulation and climate change, urban decay, and genetic engineering. So again, all of these big weighty themes that the film is exploring. That sounds fun. <laughs> uh, so which films should fans of Blade Runner 2049 watch next? Well, I know you're a big fan of Denis Villeneuve's previous film, uh, Arrival, with Amy Adams, which is all about um, aliens arriving on Earth and striving to make communication with them. I'd also recommend various films around artificial intelligence, such as Her, which I think had a big influence on this film. That's a Spike Jones film from 2014. Alex Garland's Ex Machina, uh, Steven Spielberg's AI, and then also kind of more quote-unquote sophisticated sci-fi such as that of the Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky, so films like Solaris if you're really really feeling ambitious. We also have a blog on the film called The Remarkable Visual Design of Blade Runner 2049. We have an interview with Lydia Fry, the art director of Blade Runner 2049 on SoundCloud and we also have a previous podcast on uh, Arrival, one of the films we've just mentioned. So let's now move on to our second film, Bree. Breathe is a 12 certificate and 11 plus on our catalogue and it is the true story of a couple whose lives change after the man is struck down with polio and left paralysed. This takes us into the past and deals with scientific advances from the 1950s. It tells the true story of a couple named Robin and Diana Cavendish, and they were an adventurous, newly married pair living in Kenya in the 1950s, when Robin was suddenly struck down with crippling polio, and it left him paralysed from the neck down, and he was only aged 28 and given literally months to live. So as the film unfolds, he's bedbound, but gradually, with the help of those around him, and in particular Diana, 
he's able to embark on some form of rehabilitation and it leads to the pair campaigning for better treatment for polio patients and disabled people around the world. So to help set the scene, here's a clip from early on in the film. Dr. Carton, Robin and I, we, uh, we wanted to ask you a question, didn't we, Robin? Can machines like that ventilator only work in hospitals? Well, it's just a machine, you know. You plug it in and it goes. Why do you ask? Robin's going to leave the hospital. Do you have any idea of the risks? Yes. Yes, I do. The risk is that he might die. What sort of tone does the film strike in telling this emotional story? And what sort of approach does Andy Serkis take in his directorial debut? Right, so Andy Serkis is the director of this, and he's an actor whose own career has been built on advances in science and technology because he's best known for his work in the world of motion capture. So he made his name playing Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and he's gone on to be King Khan in Peter Jackson's film and Caesar in the Planet of the Apes series. So he's very much associated with that. But this is a very, very different film. And what it is, is a very likeable and warm-hearted, surprisingly funny film. You know, initially starts off almost like a caricature of upper-class expat British life. It's you know literally full of tea and crumpets and cricket, but it swiftly undercuts that into something very, very different. The early scenes of Robin's illness, Robin is played by Andrew Garfield, I should say, and they're really heartbreaking to watch. And it's quite shocking to see the callous way in which disabled people were treated in hospitals and institutions at the time. The producer of this film, uh, Jonathan, is actually the son of Diana and Robin, and that lends the film a real authenticity, I think, an affection towards its characters. But despite its tone, which is often quite breezy and warm, it never for a second lets the audience forget or underestimate the seriousness of his condition, and it strikes that very delicate but clever balance throughout, I think. And how would you describe the relationship between the two central characters? Well, the film is mostly a love story, um, and while it does spend time dealing with you know, Robin's condition and how it's affecting him personally, it also spends just as much time um, exploring how it impacts on Diana's life. Diana is played by Claire Foy, who people may know from The, um, the Crown, and it explores those kind of complicated feelings and emotions that she is going through. And throughout, what they're doing is they're helping each other through the situation and inspiring one another to not only not give up, but to go beyond that and fight and make life better for those in similar situations as well as themselves. But what this focus on them as individuals does, I think, is it stops the film ever becoming, quote-unquote, an issue film. You know, it's more of a character piece. And through that storytelling technique, it helps the audience to understand who these people were and how they were able to deal with you know, the challenging situations that they had. You know, they're real people with energy and spirit and wit, but they also have flaws. And there's also a healthy sense of rebellion, particularly with Robin himself. Um, and there's a lot of the humour is extracted from that. Okay, so for fans of this film, what would you recommend after watching Breathe? Well, I think it would definitely appeal to anybody who liked the theory of everything. Um, Eddie Redmayne's portrayal of Stephen Hawking. Um, if you haven't seen that, I think that's a very good fit with this one. Um, again, dealing with advances in science and how people treat people with disabilities. Building on that, I think something a bit more advanced and a bit more challenging, a film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is a really beautiful and moving film. 
and also a wonderful documentary about the singer Edwin Collins called The Possibilities of Endless and his rehabilitation after a stroke. So those are all fantastic films. And just finally, just to, to, by complete contrast, um, there's a great film called Sex and Drugs and Rotten and Roll in which Andy Serkis plays Ian Dury, who himself survived polio. And I think a lot of what Andy Serkis learned during that performance would have been built on and fed into how he approached Breathe. We also have some red carpet interviews by one of our young reporters from London Film Festival, where we interviewed cast and crew, including Andrew Garfield, Claire Foy and director Andy Serkis. And you'll find these clips in the show notes from the podcast. OK, so that's everything for today. Thank you for listening. And do check out our previous podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes, all of which are accompanied by show notes, linking to resources, including film guides, film lists, blogs and video content. If you're also interested in primary content, we have a new podcast for you as well, featuring the Lego Ninjado movie. We'll be back with a new episode next month, so tune in then.